Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When Sue Klebold heard about her son's involvement in the Columbine High School shootings on April 20th, 1999, she prayed. Now, while most mothers in Littleton were praying their children were safe, Klebold prayed her son would die before he hurt anyone else. Her son Dylan and his friend Eric Harris killed 13 people and injured many more before killing themselves. Klebold reflects on the time before and after the attack in her new book, A Mother's Reckoning, Living in the Aftermath of Tragedy. Any profits, she says, will go to mental health charities. Sue, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Let's start with the day of your son's birth, September Mm -hmm. 11th, 1981. Mm -hmm. You write, looking down at the perfect bundle in my arms, I was overcome by a strong premonition. This child would bring me a terrible sorrow. I am not superstitious by nature, and this feeling I had never experienced before and haven't since. I was so startled by it, I could hardly move. What do you make of that experience now? I think I I still make of it uh, what I did at that time. It was a passing feeling that went over very quickly, like a shadow. And right after that occurred, my Dylan became very ill, and he had to have surgery. And with all the care and all the worry over that surgery, I looked back on that moment and thought that it must have been a moment of intuition regarding his health and that we had intervened in time. And I've totally forgot about that uh, moment where I had that premonition until I woke up the day after his death and I remember waking and remembering that that had actually happened. Do you think it was uh, some sort of premonition in that case? I don't know. Hmm. I really don't know. You write about the shooting in some detail, and it's clear your son killed at least five people and injured nine before killing himself. What does the grieving process look like when you're dealing with both the loss of your son and the mayhem he inflicted? Um, It is just a complex mix of every awful emotion one can imagine. There was terrible sorrow that I felt for the families of the other victims. I uh, was obsessed once I realized what had happened with the manner in which the children and the teacher had died. And it it was such a complex, layered um, set of feelings because I was feeling sorrow for them. I was feeling sorrow for my own son trying to understand Mostly, I remember being completely bewildered because I didn't understand what had happened or how it had happened. I would read things in the paper that didn't seem to be true, so I um, entered a a period of denial where I thought perhaps much of this wasn't true and Dylan wasn't really there as a participant. Maybe somehow he was an observer or had gotten tricked. And on top of all that sorrow and grief and confusion was also humiliation, terrible shame for being associated with someone who would do such a terrible thing, and then having to be exposed to the world and to be judged and to be hated, uh, you know, to turn on the radio and hear yourself being called disgusting. So I actually began to feel very paranoid on top of all the other feelings I was experiencing. Paranoid. Unsafe? Did you receive threats? I received um, a very few uh, things that I would perceive as threats or hate mail because much of my mail was being filtered to protect me from seeing a lot of those things. But uh, we certainly had family members in other states who were receiving 
literally thousands of phone calls, and some of them were threats, yes. You say in the book that you worry people will think you're callous Mm -hmm. for having grieved for your son first, or I suppose at all, in in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a perception that some people have, and and that has been expressed to me in, in certain ways. One of the difficult things about this tragedy and to talk about it and to write about it is that um, Dylan's death was, technically speaking, a murder-suicide, that he killed other people and then he killed himself. And in trying to understand his death and why such a thing happens, in Dylan's case, I believe his suicidality was the mechanism through which he participated in this. So when I focus on his loss or talk about his death as a suicide, I'm sure it feels very offensive to some people that uh, because it seems that I'm disregarding the murders, and I'm not, and um, of course, but this is the, the way that I am trying to understand it. Yeah, some might hear that and, and think it's self-preservation that you would look at this primarily as a suicide and mm-hmm. not as a murder. Right. Um, what would you say? I would say, you know, perhaps to some degree that may be true. But, you know, in reality, a small percentage of suicides do involve the death of another person. And in order to understand, in this case, how something like this could happen, we have to perceive a murder-suicide to be one manifestation of suicide and that suicidality, in Dylan's case, was the driver for his participation. We'll talk more about how you have come to that um, and uh, experts you've spoken with mm-hmm. uh, in putting the book together and the work you'd like to do going forward um, mm-hmm. to help other parents recognize mental health issues in their children and uh, perhaps the desire to commit suicide. I, I do want to talk just a little bit more about the day of the shooting. How did you know something was was up at Columbine High School, first of all? And then how how soon after that did you get some kind of word that your son was involved? Um, before I answer that question, may I make a comment? Please do. And I, I don't know if, if you would like this interruption or not, but I noticed that you used the words commit suicide. And that is a term that the suicide prevention community is trying to eradicate. We don't like to think of a suicide as a crime. And of course, in Dylan's case, it was because he murdered others. But when someone dies by suicide, it is a result most often of an illness. And it is not technically some kind of a choice in the manner that you and I would think of as a choice. So we like to say someone died by suicide or someone took his own life or killed himself. Those are terms. And we uh, urge people not to use the words commit suicide. So Hmm. That's a demonstration and part of the work you're doing now and the yes. community you're involved with mm-hmm. now. And to this question of the day of the shooting and the news you received. Mm-hmm. So that day, um, in the morning that day, Dylan had said goodbye in a most peculiar way. I was getting ready for work that morning and it was dark and his bedroom was upstairs and mine was on the main level. And I heard him bounding down the stairs heavily, and he ran past my bedroom door without turning on lights. And I opened the bedroom door, and I called out. I couldn't see anything, but I said, Dill. And at that point, he was at the front door, and he said, bye. And he slammed the door, and he left. I was very concerned. It didn't sound like him. I didn't know why he was up early. 
Um, I woke my husband and I said, something is bothering Dylan. Will you be here today when he comes home from school so you can talk to him and find out what it is? He said, yes, I'll talk to him. Now, at that point, all I knew was that something was bothering him. I had no conception that it was a life and death issue. I thought it was just perhaps, you know, a teenage issue of some kind. I went on to work. And about noon, the uh, my telephone on my desk had a uh, message light on it. And I returned to my desk. The message light was flashing. And I got a message from my husband. And his voice was terribly broken and breathless. And he said, Susan, this is an emergency. Call me back immediately. And I knew from the tone of his voice instantly that something had happened to one of our children. I was searching my thoughts to try to think, where are they? You know, one of them was at work and one of them was at school. You know, what could there be an accident? You, you have another son. Uh, I do, by, yes. By uh-huh. And then I called Tom back and he just said, listen to the television. And he put the phone in front of the television. And then I was really filled with horror because I thought, what could be big enough that would be on television? And I thought perhaps we were at war. And, I, and I, I yelled into the phone, what's happening? And then Tom got on the phone and just poured out, you know, there's a shooting happening at the school. Some people in trench coats are, are shooting at people. I don't know where Dylan is. You know, his friend just called here to see if he was at home. And he was just tumbling over his words. And I just said, I'm coming home right now. And I left work and came home to face the rest of the day. And at that point, did you have any sense that your son was involved? Did you have a, some kind of gut feeling based on the, the experiences of that morning? I did have a sense of foreboding that something was wrong, but I had no idea of the uh, magnitude of what was actually occurring. Dylan had mentioned to me in passing uh, in the weeks before the tragedy that there was going to be some kind of a senior prank. And I remember talking with him about this and saying, I don't care if the whole senior class is involved. Don't do anything. You're on a diversion program. Shaving cream on a banister could get you in trouble. And I was remembering that he had mentioned a prank. So in my mind, this was some kind of a prank that had gone wrong somehow. The diversion program was that uh, he and Eric um, had, I think, stolen some equipment. Yes. And they were on this diversion program as, as a result of that. Mm-hmm. What was the first confirmation you had that your son was involved? After I got home, um, it was very chaotic. My husband had called an attorney because since Dylan had been on diversion and we believed he was involved in some kind of prank, not really knowing the level, the magnitude of what was happening, that he would need an attorney. And the attorney then uh, was able to contact the sheriff's department and get word back to us. And they said, yes, there is something going on at the school. It, you know, it appears that there's some kind of a shooting and somehow your son is involved with this. And uh, that was how we learned of his involvement before it, it opened up. And as the day went on, we learned it just got worse and worse. You talked a little earlier about the denial that you found yourself in in the early days. And I, I'd like to return to that topic after a quick break. Certainly. We are speaking with Sue Klebold. Her new book is called A Mother's Reckoning, Living in the Aftermath of Tragedy. Her son, Dylan Klebold, was one of the shooters at Columbine High School. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's get back to my conversation with Sue Klebold, whose son Dylan and his friend Eric were the shooters at Columbine High School in April of 1999. They killed 12 students, a teacher, and wounded 24 others before taking their own lives. So uh, earlier in the conversation, you talked about the denial that you were in in the early days as to your son's involvement. Mm -hmm. And that denial was really shattered. Your perception of what his role might have been was really shattered when law enforcement officials sat you and your husband down and went over exactly what they knew. How did your perception of what you had hoped he had been involved in in a more limited way compare to what he had actually engaged in? Well, I think you're using the word shattered is the right word. Um, I had believed up until that point that somehow this was something that was really not Dylan's fault. And I use air quotes because, I mean, it's like, of course, it was his fault. He was there. He did this. But I think in my mind, I believe that somehow he had – that it had either been something very impulsive that he was responding to or that he had been tricked or coerced or there was some kind of theater that was supposed to happen and – Real guns had been used to replace, you know, I don't know, toy. I know it sounds ridiculous, but honestly, that is where our frame of mind was because those of us who knew Dylan could not believe that he was capable of doing this and being there willingly and doing the things that people were saying that he had done. So when I heard the police report and I, they sat me down and, we, and they, it was very um, – they were very respectful They showed um, the weapons that were used. They talked about the planning that had gone into it. I was just so stunned and sickened. I I remember standing up and thinking I was going to be ill. I almost, you know, left the room. And we had gone into it sitting in my lap uh, were questions that I had regarding could he have been brainwashed and how could that have happened because I was so sure that that's what they were going to tell me. And when I learned that he was certainly – a participant who had planned this terrible thing, and I saw some of the planning, some of the conversations that they had filmed. It was almost as shocking for me as as the day of the shootings. You talk about the planning of the attack, and you know it's it's largely seen as a shooting, but it yes. was supposed to be much larger. It was supposed to be a bombing. Right. Bombs were supposed to go off in the parking lot, for instance. A kind of second wave to hit first responders. And there were bombs, obviously, in the school that uh, that failed to detonate. And I, I think that when people hear the story, they hear about the sophistication of the attack and how much planning would have had to have uh, happened, th- this sense of how could you not have known? Right. And I have been asked that many times. And my response is that the way Dylan presented himself to me and what was happening in his life did not show me any indications that he was as ill as he really was, as, um, you know, off the rails. He had gotten into trouble 14 months before he died. There was a, a series of things that were aberrant in his behavior. He uh, gotten arrested. He got in trouble at school. And after that, um, we searched his room. We took walks. We talked with him. We tried to understand what that little episode meant. And he at that time promised us that he would get his life on track, that he didn't need help, he was fine. And really that last year of his life, he really was behaving well. He was behaving as if he were um, 
He was focused on his future. He applied to and was accepted at four of his four colleges, got into his first choice school. He had a job. He hung out with various friends. He went to a prom three days before the massacre. Twelve friends went in a limo together out to dinner. He came home, told me he'd had the best time of his life. These are not behaviors that you would see or expect to see in someone who was as far along a progression as he was. Sue, your ability to list all of those items, those indications that your son is just a normal kid, to me says that you have racked your brain. (laughs) For what were potential signs I could have missed? What is my culpability? Right. Is that a, a proper casting of of the kind of inventory you've taken? Oh, absolutely. And even though it's been almost 17 years, I continue to do this, and I probably will do it for the rest of my life. And I know that when there is a death by suicide in families, this particular process is very common uh, for the survivors of that loss. We always blame ourselves, find a a tremendous amount of guilt for not saying that one thing that would have made a difference or listened in such a way that something would have been drawn out. I know that after Dylan uh, died, I, uh, I would go back through his life. I remember thinking seriously at one point that some, that the fact that I hadn't decorated his birthday cake when he was three and had only put sprinkles on it. And I had decorated his brother's cake, you know, was a sign that somehow he felt unloved. I know that sounds so insanely stupid, but that's the kind of thing you go through. You examine every moment, every conversation. And yes, I do that. I continue to do that. It strikes me that the difference is, though, that when in the scenario that is not a murder-suicide, that someone has taken their own life, Mm -hmm. there are a hundred people around the survivors who will say, it wasn't your fault. Yes, In your case, there are a hundred people, you know, in the press, perhaps, these are not your friends or family, who say Mm -hmm. it is your fault. Right. That that's the difference. Right. You didn't so much hear the affirming message of, don't worry, this isn't your fault. Right. I did hear this from the people who knew Dylan because they were sharing the same guilt that I had, that they had not saved him, that they had not done or said the right thing, and people who had seen him in the last few days of his life. Um, And it was very difficult to have people believe uh, from the outside of this inner circle that I was responsible or that, that, you know, we hadn't raised him right. And the thing that eventually brought comfort to me was getting aligned with other survivors of suicide loss because they, to some scale, had experienced the same thing that I had. Someone would always be there to imply that this death had been their fault, that they had not been the right wife or mother or daughter. And um, they understood that. And it was very helpful to me to be around other people who to some degree understood what I was going through. And yet at that time, school shootings were incredibly um, rare, Mm -hmm. unusual, certainly not commonplace as they feel today. So I have to think that it was a very lonely experience as well, that there were Perhaps very few people who'd experienced exactly what you had. Right. Is, is that true? It's, it is true. And um, I, I think I, I write in the book about this feeling of being from another planet when I would meet people, that behind my face was all this suffering and sorrow and fear and shame and trying to to act normal and to uh, function in a normal world and go to work. It was extremely difficult. It took a lot of effort. It was a very lonely place. 
I mean, after the attacks, you write that the world judged you Mm -hmm. and judged your son. Yes. And uh, you say judged your son to be a monster, a bad seed. And you write that people needed him to be a monster, in part because it was easier to believe that. Mm -hmm. Could you read a bit from the book for us? Certainly. Like all mythologies, this belief that Dylan was a monster served a deeper purpose. People needed to believe they would recognize evil in their midst. Monsters are unmistakable. You would know a monster if you saw one, wouldn't you? If Dylan was a fiend whose heedless parents had permitted their disturbed, raging teen to amass a weapons cache right under their noses, then the tragedy, horrible as it was, had no relevance to ordinary moms and dads in their own living rooms, their own children tucked snugly into soft beds upstairs. The events might be heartbreaking, but they were also remote. If Dylan was a monster, then the events at Columbine, however tragic, were anomalous, the equivalent of a lightning strike on a clear, sunny day. What do you want parents to take away from that passage, and I suppose more largely this book? I want parents to never have to go through the kind of suffering that occurred in our community and in our family and in the families of all those involved. And I want them to realize that what they see in their children may not be what is existing in their children's minds. I wanted to encourage people to listen to their children differently. I certainly thought I was a good listener and had good conversations with Dylan. But in retrospect, I feel so often that I talked and tried to um, tell him how to feel or offer him support and offer him solutions. And I feel that if I had acknowledged his feelings and gave him an opportunity to express himself without trying to help, I think it might have opened up um, his ability to communicate. And I always say I think the most important thing parents can do is to shut up and listen. Indeed, you you write, I'll never know whether I could have prevented my son's terrible role in the carnage, but I have come to see things I wish I had done differently. So the things is plural there. You've mentioned uh, wanting to listen to him more. What What else do you think you would have done differently? One of the things I certainly would have done differently um, was I knew nothing about teen depression when this happened. It was something I didn't understand. I didn't know how to detect it. Was Dylan depressed? From what all the experts are saying and from what I believe, I believe he was depressed. Um, and my experience with depression uh, was was working with adults in a psychiatric hospital years ago. So I saw catatonic adults or people who were moving very slowly and who behaved in a, in a manner that showed that the weight of the world was in their bodies. And teen depression does not show itself that way. Um, in, in boys, it can be irritability, even rage. It can be too, uh, sleep disturbances, either lack of sleep or too much sleep. It can be changes in behavior, and I highlight that because I believe that what I saw in junior year, when Dylan got in trouble at school, when he got in trouble uh, for stealing the equipment, those occurred in a cluster. And if I look back on that now, those were indications of a change in behavior. And rather than just making the assumption that he would get his life on track as he promised, I wish I had found 
counseling for him. And I want to stress that this is why I'm donating the money uh, to um, brain health organizations and to suicide prevention. If I had gotten him help and if I had made sure that he had gone to counseling, then it would have been the responsibility uh, of myself to try to find someone who was qualified to help him and trained and had the right tools. Remember that um, Eric saw a counselor as well, and he participated in this. At one point, Dylan did ask you to get him a gun, um, and you responded pretty swiftly, no, yes. you didn't want guns in the home, and you said you can get a gun when you're old enough to buy one. Mm-hmm. Some will read that and think that was a key moment. That was a watershed moment where Sue Klebold might have acted. Right. Why wasn't it in your view? Well, I saw no indicators that he was a threat to himself or to anyone else. And where we live in Colorado, many, many people have guns. Certainly where I lived in the rural area, almost as far as I knew, most if not all of our neighbors had firearms. And I know friends who use guns recreationally. And so given our environment here, I didn't think that was you know, an unusual question. During Dylan's life, he had also asked us for a muscle car. He had asked us for, you know, gliding lessons. Kids ask for things that they can't possibly have, and I thought that was one of those things. And my answer was, when you get old enough, you can do this, but you know I would never, ever buy you a gun. And he didn't refer to it again. He didn't dwell on it. I thought it was just one of those passing things And it was only long after his death that I learned that that question came at the time that the Tanner Gun Show was in town and he was in the process of trying to purchase a gun. I'd like to talk about communications, any relationships you've developed with uh, the families of the victims at Mm -hmm. at Columbine High School after a break. We're speaking with Sue Klebold about her new book, A Mother's Reckoning, Living in the Aftermath of Tragedy. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we'll rejoin our conversation now with Sue Klebold. Her book is called A Mother's Reckoning, Living in the Aftermath of Tragedy. It is about her son, Dylan, who was one of two shooters at Columbine High School in 1999. She writes about the time before and after the attacks. You wrote letters to the victims' families, and you started with the families who'd lost someone and then to those whose loved ones had been injured. I'd like to go back perhaps even before the letter writing. What was the first interaction you had with a family member of of the victims? There was no previous interaction with families. The letters were the first. The letters were the first. The only thing I had done was I read about them in the paper as much as I was able to. And you have to understand that it was so painful for me to do that I couldn't read the paper or the accounts of what had happened because it just uh, – I, I, I couldn't function if I did that. I would be too incapacitated. But once I made the decision that I wanted to write, then I began to try to read and know who these individuals really were. And there was a common paragraph in each of those letters in which – I referred to Dylan's involvement as a moment of madness because at that time, that's what I believed it was. It was inconceivable to me that he was there because it was something premeditated. And in my mind, I thought his being there was literally a moment of madness. 
the reactions to the letters were mixed. Yes. In the uh, months following that, uh, two of the parents, and and it would be uh, the father of one of the boys and the mother of one of the girls, did reach out to me and ask to meet me and, and meet my husband and me. And in one case, I met with the mother alone, and in the other case, the father met with both of us. And I can't even put into words how much that meant to me, how grateful I was to them. Uh, We had an opportunity to talk about our children, share, in one case, shared pictures with each other. Um, And the mother who met with me was so kind and gracious. And the very first thing she asked me was, who was Dylan? And I remember thinking that was such a lovely and kind thing to say, to not just assume that he was the monster that everybody portrayed him to be. How how did you answer her? I told her who Dylan was to me, that he was beloved and precious and told her some of the things that I had loved about him. And we had a box of Kleenex between us, and we both talked about our children and cried. And uh, it was one of the greatest gifts I ever received. And of the families who didn't receive the letter well, Mm -hmm. uh, I think you suspect in the book that some may have just torn it up before they even read it. Mm -hmm. What were some of those reactions? I had read that. It was hurtful, but I also understood that every one of the individuals who would be receiving the letter, that they were all different people, and that I could not expect the same reaction from everyone. And what that taught me was to never, in my mind, refer to the victims and assume they were a representational group of one state of mind and that um, their level of pain might have prevented them from accepting that letter and that that was okay. That was where they were at that time. What about your contact with the Harris family? We uh, are in contact occasionally. And what I want to say about this whole issue of people who are related to individuals who carry out crimes such as this, I think no one should ever perceive their silence to be indifference. It is not indifference. For people who have family members who do horrible things to other people, we loathe what they did. We are humiliated by what they did. And for most people, it is too difficult to make themselves public, to talk about it, to uh, constantly go back to this and relive it. That is true for um, the many survivors of murder-suicides that I have talked with. And I want everyone to understand that my willingness to talk about this is the aberration. It's an unusual circumstance. And to never judge people by not wanting to make themselves public, it's a terribly, terribly difficult thing to make yourself public after something like this occurs. I gather it's not a decision you made lightly, given that it's so many years after uh, the shootings at Columbine. Um, What kind of tipped you over the edge to write the book and and become public? I'm not sure that there was an exact edge. I had been a writer. I mean, I was a journaler. I was somebody who always wrote, and um, I had hundreds of pages written about this experience. So in my mind, I knew that I would at some point write something. The difficulty was being ready to publish. And it took incrementally you know, years to be able to get to a level of healing where I would be able to show my face, tell my story, 
um, withstand the criticism and the judgment once again when we had managed to get past it. So I think stories such as one of the ones I relay in the book um, of people who knew me and would tell me that knowing my story had caused them to parent differently. There was a a woman that I had worked with whose 13-year-old daughter was acting different to her. And because she knew me, she pressed and dug and tried tried to really dig and find out if there was something behind this slight change in her behavior. And she did learn that her daughter had been raped on the street when she had left the house during a time when she was not supposed to and was able to help her child after learning this. So what I focused on in order to do this was the importance of understanding that our loved ones can be deeply troubled and deeply disturbed, and we may not know that. And we don't want them to suffer in any way, and we certainly don't want it to escalate into a major tragedy. And I really finally got to the point where that desire to make that known overcame any fears I had about it. And what about the thought that it might re-traumatize some of the other families? That it it reopens a wound, maybe. Absolutely. And I was very conscious of that for all of the families, including my own family. Um, My goal in writing this book was to try to help people understand the importance of being aware of these issues, to know how many people are in distress, to understand that suicide is the second leading cause of death for youth And I sincerely hope that reading the book will help people learn and help people be safer and get access to care. And I thought that by trying to prevent tragedies like this so that these kinds of losses never happen again outweighed the risk that that I am um, taking of of re-traumatizing. And I hope sincerely that, that some good will come and then some conversations will occur. Let's take a final break and return to our conversation with Sue Klebold, whose new book is A Mother's Reckoning, Living in the Aftermath of Tragedy. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Sue Klebold about her book, A Mother's Reckoning, Living in the Aftermath of Tragedy. It's about her experience mothering Dylan Klebold, who was one of the shooters at Columbine High School, the attack in 1999. Let's talk about your son Dylan's relationship with Eric Harris, his his co-conspirator. You believe, as do many independent experts, I'll say, that uh, Harris was a psychopath, mm-hmm. someone who doesn't have the capacity to empathize. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that struck me is your belief that even on the day of the shootings, your son was under Harris's influence, that he seemed to hold his fire when he believed Eric wasn't watching. Mm-hmm. Explain what you mean. One of the um, – we've talked to many experts in the writing of this book and this was not an invention of my own. It was based on data that was given to me. And there is evidence to show that at, at various points during the course of this event that Dylan was not firing uh, to the same level of frequency and that he tended to fire more in Eric's presence and that kind of data is uh, where I base that statement on. And let me say this. Um, the journalist Dave Cullen, who wrote a 2009 book about the attack at mm-hmm. Columbine, was interviewed about your new book. And I, I want to quote him here. Mm-hmm. I think the Klebolds raised this sweet kid who befriended Eric, a bad seed and really monstrous kid. 
uh, he's using the term monster there, interesting, uh, who wanted to kill off the entire species in the entire planet. Mm -hmm. They had the horrible bad luck of their son falling into the wrong friend. If Dylan hadn't been hanging out with Eric, he probably wouldn't have been involved. That's really the extent of what they did wrong. As for not detecting the extent of Dylan's depression, I think that happens far more widely than we know, and that's why what Sue Klebold has to say is important. How have you come to terms with what Eric did and what Eric's role is? The way I have come to terms with it is to um, really look again at the issue of brain function and brain health. And although it may be uncomfortable for people to hear this, and I certainly understand that it might even make people feel angry, but from what I have learned in all the research that I have done, I believe that both Dylan and Eric were victims of their own dysfunctional brains. I believe that um, to what extent they had access to tools of self-governance and conscience I don't think they had access to those tools to the same degree that the rest of us do. Now, I don't fully understand, I will never understand really, how someone could be in that place and be experiencing the the thoughts that he did and have the actions that he did. But I do have some empathy for Eric. When I look at some of his writings or um, anything that he had created, whether it was drawings or writing his thoughts, Those cannot be looked at without seeing that this is a severely disturbed person, that this is somebody who is not really in full control of his faculties in the sense that that we are. And, um, you know, I'm not holding anyone blameless here. I'm just simply saying that we need to know a lot more about how these things operate. There was a lot of talk after the shootings at Columbine about bullying. Yes, You dig into this, especially when it relates to your own son. Mm -hmm. What does the attack at Columbine High School tell us about bullying? And is it the right, in your mind, is it the right discussion to have happened afterwards? I think the discussion of bullying was a good discussion and an important one. And it certainly led to changes in federal laws, in teaching protocols and practices. But I think we're just a little off in our interpretation of this. Bullying is a factor in many deaths and certainly in many suicides and perhaps in school shootings as well. But bullying in itself does not cause suicide and it does not cause mass murder. When someone is in a state where they are contemplating killing themselves at least without killing others, this is an interaction between biological and genetic factors, personality factors, social factors. And there is an overlap where certain of those factors, if they overlap to the correct degree, will make someone extremely vulnerable. And it is when someone who has that vulnerability has a triggering event, that's when the risk escalates very quickly. Was there a triggering event for your son? I mean, what you're describing there is something of a a perfect storm that leads to perhaps suicide. There is an incident you write about in the book. I think you only learned about it afterwards. Do you Mm -hmm. see it as a triggering event? And and maybe could you describe it? Yes, I think it can be a triggering event, such as the one. um, Dylan came home from school one day, and I, I couldn't remember when it happened. I believe it was in his junior year when he had spots of ketchup on his shirt. 
And I asked him what happened, and he told me, I have just had the worst day of my life. I don't even want to talk about it. And because he had told me that he didn't want to talk about it, I gave him that space and didn't press. Now, years, months later, I had heard of an incident that was a bullying incident where where he and Eric had been encircled and shoved and ketchup had been squirted at them. And I've heard other versions of this that are even you know, more degrading than that. Um, but I did see evidence that that had occurred, and that's why I shared that story. But And I think they experienced that incident together, and none of their friends witnessed it. So it was something that bonded the two of them together. But I also want to point out that an environment that is perpetually toxic and there is, you know, degradation and disenfranchisement, that these things go on. That is a collective environment that beats someone down and down and down. And I think that environment can definitely contribute to suicidal as well as homicidal thoughts. And to the person who says, you know, lots of kids are bullied and don't kill themselves right. or kill others, right. you would say it's it's more complex than just the bullying. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have you heard from the parents of the Aurora Theater Shooter? You know, I'm I'm going to protect the privacy of all the people that I have talked to by not answering that question. Um, I have spoken with quite a few uh, families uh, who have a family member who has done something horrible because uh, through my uh, work in suicide prevention and some of my volunteer work, I know people who know people and, you know, counselors refer to me. And uh, if I can be of help to people who have experienced something like this, I do make myself available to them. So I won't answer that question directly, but I will say I've spoken with quite a few individuals who have been associated with high-profile tragedies. You have a message for the media in this book. Yes. Particularly how the media covers mass shootings. Yes. What is the takeaway in in your mind? The takeaway is that – that shootings continue to occur, and sometimes we are baffled about that. But we have to understand that the more we portray graphic images, we show shooters in their clothing that they've identified, we show them making t- videotapes, we show surveillance tapes, we put it on the front page and we do a body count and we say, this individual killed this many people. All of those things are highly dangerous and inflammatory, and that vulnerable people who feel left out, hurt, disenfranchised, angry, will look to these and use these as a blueprint. And we know from the study of suicide that uh, from contagion that making details of someone's suicide available highly increases risk of contagion. And the same is true for mass shootings. Are you, are we contributing to that by talking about this book? I I hope not. I certainly asked every expert I was able to ask how to talk about this and how to frame it um, in my book and even in the description of what happened because I felt it was important to put that description in. We tried to remove every word that would uh, provide imagery. The visual aspect of the news media is probably the most dangerous But certainly the written word can be dangerous too. And we need to all be really mindful of this. There are guidelines that are written for the media to help them cover stories that involve suicide. And uh, these guidelines are out there, and I recommend that everyone read them. Do you keep photos of Dylan out in your home? Absolutely, yes. 
because the Dylan that I honor and love and remember is still the the person that is dear to me. And I didn't, in all my grief work trying to understand this, I, I had to let myself um, accept that the way he died in the last moments of his life were not who he was to me. So yes, I certainly do have pictures all over my walls. How has this experience shaped your view of your own existence and your son's? Do you believe that Dylan was brought into your life for a reason? Do you see this as a a fated path? Do you see this as random circumstances and you're trying to find meaning in it? Um, I have to think that this has led you to grapple with the meaning of life and the like. And absolutely, that's a fascinating question. And yes, I have uh, sort of flip-flopped on what I believe. There are times when I just believe, you know, all is chaos. You know, I was the one in five million who would have a son do something like this. But I also have moments when I think, hmm, why why am I who I am? You know, I was always a teacher and I'm rather extroverted that I was willing to go out and write this book and talk about it. And, you know, was that somehow a destiny? And I, I don't have an answer for that. Um, when something difficult happens, we do the best we can to just survive and to process it in our own way. And that's sort of the way I've looked at this. I'm processing this in a way that is meaningful to me. And that's all I've tried to do. And I imagine that um, processing must get difficult when you expand it, not to just your son, but then to the those who were killed and injured. Well, and you think, well, you exactly. know, th- th- that makes it infinitely more complicated well, to get your mind around. Absolutely. And that's exactly where it goes. Because I think, you know, if I try to put Dylan's death into some kind of a context, then how do I, how do I even wrap my arms around why this particular individual was killed as he or she was? And it, it gets, it's too, too grand. I can't even go there. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Sue Klebold is the author of A Mother's Reckoning, Living in the Aftermath of Tragedy. It's about her son Dylan, who was one of the shooters at Columbine High School. She says all the proceeds from the book will go to organizations that focus on mental health issues. You can read an excerpt at cprnews.org. Andrea Dukakis produced today's interview. Before we go, a note that I'll interview Democratic Governor John Hickenlooper later this week, and we welcome your questions for him. Send them to news at CPR.org. That's news at CPR.org. Please include your name and where you live. There are other ways to reach out to us. On Twitter, we're at Colorado Matters and CPR News on Facebook. I'm Ryan Warner, and this is Colorado Matters from Colorado Public Radio.